Hey guys, how you doing? I'm super happy today. One, because I get to see my longtime friend, Danny Pellegrino. I mean, I, we've known each other. It's got to be going on a decade, even though that sounds weird. I know. It's crazy, Sean. It's crazy. Be- <laughs> because we met at Brick in West Hollywood, which I feel like was the inception of all of my connections in L.A. I don't know how it was for you, but it feels like a lot of the start of my career got started at a Brick West Hollywood. Yeah, for this workout, this gym, I feel like I met so many longtime friends and people I've collaborated with and or even still to this day, I'll, I, you, I always know someone who knows someone from there. There's always some yeah. weird connection. It's like an epicenter. Well, yeah. the show is called Multi-Hyphenate, and I really can't think of a guy who's more multi-hyphenate. I mean, the amount of different, and what's so interesting is like, you're a writer, like through and through. But you write in so many different mediums, which I, and we haven't even talked about this because you've been so busy over the last few years. I assume you're writing your own jokes at times. So like single lines all the way to ghostwriting and now writing novels with your name on it. It's pretty wild, man. So wanted to start with, where are you from? Yeah, I'm from. said all that. I'm from Northeast Ohio. My family's all still there. Uh, I try to make it back as much as possible. And then I lived in Chicago for a brief time before I moved here to Los Angeles. And and we just mentioned this gym that we met at. And actually, uh, so much of my writing career started there because I got a job ghostwriting a guy named Bob mm-hmm. Harper, uh, who worked at the gym, or who worked out there that we were buddy, all buddies with. And I ghost wrote his book, and that sort of led me into the world of traditional publishing. Uh, and so last year I had my first essay collection come out, and this year I have another one coming out. But I really, I feel like it all sort of started there because prior to that, I had always pictured myself screenwriting, and that was really the goal was to write my own material for um, on-camera scripted stuff. And so I'm still doing that, And uh, but it's it's crazy how it all sort of, the nucleus was that gym and that workout place but i yeah. yeah i grew up in northeast ohio and i'm a midwest guy i love that i feel like that i just did a cross-country trip for the first time and i just noticed the sensibility my girlfriend's from the midwest and they're just like i mean this is a generalization but great people easy going so what was your relationship to ohio when you grew up like what the arts presented to you how'd you find your way to art And then if it's different now, how is your relationship now? Yeah, I always had an affinity for art. I was a pop culture junkie as a kid. I remember watching talk shows and being like obsessed with them and obsessed with celebrity Mm -hmm. and and all of movies and TV shows. There was a a video store that was dollar video rentals after like after a movie had been out six months or so, then they would go to the dollar release and I would save up my money and I would I would get the calendar that they had at the front desk of the video store and I'd highlight <laughs> the ones that I wanted to wow. go rent when they would go on a dollar video. So I was obsessed with like any Jim Carrey movie or Steve Martin or Whoopi <laughs> Goldberg or there were these people, anytime they had anything that would come out, I'd circle it or highlight it and then I'd save up my dollars and then if I'd have $4, I'd go and get four movies and I, I just was really obsessed with the industry and, and movie and filmmaking and then uh, I grew up with two straight older brothers, and I feel like my parents sort of pushed us all more into sports, but I had more of an affinity for art stuff. And I had a family friend who, uh, they had a daughter my age, and we she was almost like a sister to me because our 
families are very close and they her parents sort of pushed her more into artsy stuff and so sometimes I would kind of latch on to her so if uh, for instance she took piano lessons so then I was able to kind of get them to sign me up where she was taking piano lessons or uh, she was doing like a summer drawing art class and so it was things like that where I just latched on where I could because my parents just weren't art people they weren't creative types um they pushed us more into sports so I feel like sports is a great background too in a lot of other ways learning teamwork and working with other people but I just liked I always wanted to explore those other sides and so then as I got older I knew in high school and I started kind of dipping my toe into drama club and talent shows and stuff like that and then I went to college and I went to Ohio University for my first two years. And there was this show on campus that was called Fridays Live. And it was like a Saturday Night Live, but put on by college students. And I remember freshman year, they said, well, you can write a sketch. You can write yourself onto the show. And so I did. And it was like a high, like, even though I don't think many people watched it or there was 10 people in the audience of it, it was, I put on a character that I created and, uh, it was so much fun. And so I did that. And that kind of solidified for me of like, I wanted to do sketch and improv and and comedy. Uh, I I also had met Molly Shannon in high school and I worshipped her. I was a big SNL One fan. Of the I, best. She's a brilliant. And I remember meeting her as a 16-year-old kid and just being like, I want to do what you want to do. And she's like, well, go to Second City in Chicago. And and so immediately following college, I just thought of Molly Shannon. I was like, okay, I'm going to Second City. And so I went to Chicago and I lived there for a couple of years where I, I took classes at Second City and the IO Theater and then eventually moved out here to Los Angeles where I did the Groundlings program and kind of got into it that way. But I've always loved comedy and entertainment and all of that. I feel weird saying entertainment so many times. Do people call it the entertainment industry still? Is that a thing? It is, right? I I think they (laughs) insinuate that it's the porn industry when they call it that, but that's what I say because I'm tired of explaining all the facets. I'm just like, I'm in entertainment. Right, and, right, so right. Because you're the same way. It's like we're. It's yeah. like there's so many different parts, and I love yeah. expressing myself in all showbiz ways. My friend Hannah and I always say that's showbiz, baby, <laughs> and it's so any kind of business of show is good with me. Dude, that's amazing. I didn't know all that actually, and that makes total sense. You were actually one of the first people, and uh, if you don't want to talk about that. This this is okay, but I'm sure you're fine. It was. You were one of the first people to run up against the groundlings being like, oh, that didn't go my way and that's okay. Before that, I had heard a lot of people be like, it didn't go my way and I'm never recovering or I should quit, you know? And you were one of the first people to really be like, I have a sense of myself. That is disappointing, but I think I'm working more than the teacher. (laughs) I was too hard-headed about it. I... I love the Groundlings program for listeners. It's like this comedy school out here and you spend years going through this program and there are certain points throughout it where they can just essentially cut you from the program or not ask you to continue on. And so I had made it through all the classes and I was cut and I was devastated by it. I mean, fully launched me into like a deep depression and, and yeah, you do feel sort of crazy because you put all your eggs into this basket and I, you think it's going to go this route and and I'm so grateful I didn't give up because everything that is good at that happened in my life since then career-wise was because of 
getting let go from that. And I still have friends who are doing wonderfully, who are still there in the program and, and it's great. And I, it works for a lot of people, but I just think the path that I'm on now is like the one I was supposed to take. And, but it's devastating. And you, you question everything about like, well, I thought this was funny or I thought these things, my sensibilities or my writing was good. Cause you write a lot there. And it was just a mind fuck. The whole thing was a mind fuck for me. I remember there was a, a weird moment where you, at the end of my tenure on at the Groundlings, uh, you had put on two shows. So you do like, I don't know, six weeks of classes or something. You put on one show and then you go through the next six weeks of classes and then you put on the, the other show. And then the Groundlings main company members sort of vote on whether or not you continue on or they invite you into the sort of inner circle. And after the first show, I was like on a high. I thought I did so good. I created these, wrote these sketches that I thought were great. And I got good response. And most of my characters were gay. I'm gay myself. And I remember having the meeting afterwards with the director and just sort of being encouraged to, to explore other facets. But I kind of got in my head about it because I was taking it to mean like, don't play gay characters anymore. Like you already played a couple of gay characters. And for me, that was a struggle because I thought there are other, there's so many different types of gay characters, right? So sure. I was still playing a diverse characters. It was important to me. There was this one sketch where it was this angry boss. And I think most people would see that sketch that I did and just assume that he's like a straight guy. But I had one line in there that was like about my husband at home. Because to me, that was important to show that this guy who the audience is going to initially think is just this straight, very um, stereotypical male boss, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I fought for that one line to be in there. And that was kind of the clusterfuck that I got in my own head and the struggle that I came up against because I felt like it was important to show that it's not just stereotypically gay characters who are flamboyant or um, those kinds of things. Like you can also play, and am I making sense? You know what I'm saying? Oh my God. Yeah. I love that you're saying this. It's super yeah, but helpful. It's just, you get in your head then. And then, yeah. So it was Especially just devastating. Especially at that age, it can feel like do or die. Like if I don't take a stand now, I'll never do it again. Maybe it's like, well, yeah. maybe you're gonna write a ten thousand pieces of material, and there's plenty of room. And those circumstances are weird too, because to do a, a four minute sketch on stage, they really want you to have the character right out the gate, and they want the audience to sit back and relax. And so I understand the logistics of that, but. I felt it was really important to show that these gay characters, because I think oftentimes in those spaces, they they want you to kind of do just the flamboyant gay character, and then yeah. everyone else is is supposed to be the straight characters. And so it was just a challenge for me. But uh, oddly enough, everything really does come full circle. And there was a sketch that I wrote for Groundlings that ended up being a chapter in my book that came out last year. And so <laughs> wow. it was it was so cool to like be able to take something that I had wrote, I had written for stage uh, and use it in my book. And I think I, I love the chapter. And and so I, I think you use stuff all over the place. And I know some some things might not be the right fit, but maybe you can use it somewhere else. But it was a devastating experience and really sent me into like a depression. And I've talked to so many friends who 
who had gone through the program or were cut at various times. And it's really tough. It's challenging because there's so much time and, and those spaces are very, uh, they're curated so that you become obsessed with them and you become, mm-hmm. you think that that's the end all and the only path forward. And, and really like there's succession. a whole world. It reminds me of succession. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Which succession <laughs> is so good. I haven't watched the recent succession, so I'm a week behind, but I, I love I'm succession. a season so behind, but like that energy of like, this is the most important thing in the mm-hmm. world. And it's like, you know, because I think I think there's like mandatory rehearsal and the, it's a pricey. So already it's the most expensive class yeah. in town. So you're and like, so oh, this much time. must be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you think it, it must be. And everyone's after the same goal. So everyone becomes obsessed with it. And uh, ultimately, too, it's different now than it was, I think, even 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, it was... I'm trying to think of when I did. I was probably there around 10 years ago. And I think it was just a different vibe too. Now everything's online and things were sort of moving that way before. But uh, prior to 10 years ago, SNL only cast based on Groundlings or Second City or some of those places. And now I think it's not the same as it was. So I haven't been I haven't been able to go back. My friend Jenna Brister and I, uh, we were just talking the other day about how one day we'll have to go see a show or something, but I mm-hmm. just, I feel like I would get too much PTSD. But everyone that I know there is so brilliant and I still am so brilliant. close. They're so amazing. yeah, like yeah. so close to so many of them. And I, I get so excited when I see, I, I sort of came up with people like Jimmy Fowley, who's a writer on SNL or Heidi Gardner. Dude, he's and so funny. He's so funny. Heidi Gardner and uh, Chloe Feynman, who are both cast wow. members on SNL. like they were so brilliant and so yeah it just wasn't for the it wasn't the right outlet for me um but i the people there and and the the way that the school is sort of crafted i think is really great for so many people and paths but yeah did you ever try ucb no i feel like that's your speed just naturally because it's all about being real and then find the funny and yeah, it's like yeah. the opposite of Groundlings. Like, be funny is Groundlings. The Groundlings right is now. so like you have to do a big wacky character, and yeah, um, which yeah, is I great training would, for that. Yeah, yeah, but not for everything. I think I would have been better probably at UCB, but at that point, after Groundlings, I had already done in Chicago. I did the whole Second City program and then the whole IO uh, program. Oh yeah, so you did it. And so by that time, I was like, I can't. I've invested too yeah. much time, too much money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> too much. I was like, I'm done with this. So um, wow. yeah, but out of that, out of that depression is how I started my podcast because I remember saying I was just done performing. I w- was never going to perform again. And Matt, my boyfriend you know he had got me a podcast mic and another friend was like you should start podcasting because you can basically perform without ever leaving your house and so that kind of is how the podcast started but so it all kind of came out of that and that was when I started working out at Brick really religiously and became close with Bob who gave me the job ghostwriting his book so it all happens how it's supposed to yeah, I know. That's um, that's some wisdom that you have to earn, though, I feel like, to get to that place of it all happens like it's supposed to. I really believe it's like the world balances out how it's supposed to. So I try to always remind myself if it's a really bad day or really bad month or year or whatever, I just think the balance has to happen somewhere. And I don't know if that's mm-hmm. considered karma or some higher power or whatever, but I just think that 
it will balance. It just sometimes it takes much longer than other times. So sometimes you have a really shitty year and I've, I've had this whole first half of the year. It's been really shitty. Like I had our, we had to replace our roof. I had to have um, surgery for hernia repair and some, I had some health stuff and it's just been like a, a bad few months, but I'm kind of on the other side of it. And I just keep thinking, okay, well, it'll balance out like the, Mm -hmm. everything will get good again. My friend Alex is always like, this is just for now, good or bad. Yeah. And uh, I really, I've been in therapy like crazy the last four years. Not like crazy, but like I'm taking it as serious as food. You know, I just feel like it's important to get right because it was showing up. It was, I was leaking essentially, Mm. you know, whatever you want to call it, behavior, energy. And, um, it's just one, it saved my life and it's giving me such a peaceful life and a much more enjoyable life. Cause I found I was starting to fall out of love with acting, with writing, with directing, because I was so narrow minded on what it could be or should be. And um, have you ever heard of the Chinese fable? It's the Chinese farmer essentially. And I'm paraphrasing of course, but, He's a farmer. He has a son. Um, the army shows up to draft the son one day. And everybody, the neighbors are like, oh, my God, that's so terrible. The farmer goes, we'll see. Mm-hmm. The next day, the son's like uh, doing something with the horse, breaks his arm. They're like, that's so great. He doesn't have to go to the army now. The neighbors, he goes, we'll see. And it basically keeps flip-flopping back and forth between good and bad events. That just all linked together Mm. through a life experience, right? It's like we are, I really believe after all this work I've done on myself that we are here to experience life. And if like the universe or God, it knows like how could it not, our deepest desires. So I realized what I was doing is I was like, I want X and I'm going to make sure I try and fucking keep the car on the road towards X. But we both know life's crazy and unpredictable. It's going to get you to X this way, mm-hmm. not the straight and narrow. And, but if you're like I was for so long, you, you're trying to be safe and know everything that's coming. You got to be actually open. Missing, you're missing the links and you'll get there a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's been about trust and letting go. And um, really, because last year was a crazy year for me, Danny. Crazy. Well, tell me about it. Well, I mean, this is super heavy, but I think you can handle it. My dad killed himself from PTSD. Oh, my God, Sean. I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it's fucked up. Uh, But, um, yeah, I don't even know. You know, I can only just, like, say it because otherwise it's... Yeah. It's. uh, But I'm also trying to make it more conversational, the subject in general. But if I hadn't been doing my therapy on a men's team, all these things, I would have... I don't know, become like a 60-year-old man telling that story in a bar about how that ruined my life rather than, well, and, wow, that was a crazy experience. And any kind of thing that happens, I think when you keep it inside, and I know I've always been a fan of therapy, and also I, I tend to be like an open book because I, I just feel like I've seen the power of holding something in and how it can rot away totally. at you. You know, I've gone through tough times where I'm just like, I, I need to get it out. I'm always better when I 
get it out. And when I'm honest and just spew it out, otherwise it just festers inside and it can break you. I actually think it's the root of sickness. Mm -hmm. I think the word disease, if you break it up, is dis-ease. And I really think it's an internal thing because they really are not able to source things like cancer or why. But it's never like the chillest person on earth. And that's not an indictment. It's just like when I look back at my family or who's had it, it's like people who've endured something. They're stressed or, you know, I don't know. It's a theory and it's just how I'm floating through life to try. And I'm so sorry, Sean. Releasing. I feel terrible that I didn't know this. I mean, we haven't I had mean, a chance to see each other no, in so long. No, and, but... and no worries. And thank you. And it's not on you at all. Like, I am so proud of how I asked for help from my immediate community and people showed up and I, you know, long story short, like he drove 30 minutes to the spot where he did it. And if I truly believe in God or the universe or karma, that's a long time for life to intervene. Mm -hmm. So to me, that was his path and I miss him. But my, you know, my healthiest self is like glad he's not physically suffering anymore because he was. And the, what's the alternative? He weathers on the vine. So, yeah. you know, it's complicated and uh, also sort of not, beautiful in a way. Not to change, not to sort of shift us, but is there, yeah. how do you feel like it has affected your art? Or your- No, it's a great question. Um what I realized in retrospect is I've always been writing about PTSD. Yeah. Cause I, even when you said that, I was like, I remember the last script that I read of yours was mm-hmm. yeah. PTSD. I know it was kind of, I don't want to say kismet cause there's a, there's a positive connotation, but my, the stocking fields came out like the time he died, the main characters named Marcus. I play it. My dad's name is Mark. And I didn't intentionally like do these things, but you know, it it's always sticks out. Yeah. And it's like even helmet, the pilot I'm shopping right now is about a race car driver with PTSD because yeah. it's my foray into PTSD isn't just for the military. Yeah. I think most people are carrying it in some way. I mean, I've been diagnosed with it. And it's weird to talk about because it's like, am I trying to take away something from the veterans? But no, if you think about it in terms of like generational trauma, it's about energy. So if my dad had PTSD and he came into the house and children are sponges of what's happening, then he's just presenting behavior that is the byproduct of PTSD, which then I incorporate as Mm -hmm. behavior. And I realized that in reflection, and it was like really powerful because I would get really hung up in traffic. And not like people talk about traffic and they're like, yeah, it fucking sucks. I get mad. I would get like embarrassingly angry Mm. and short with, you know, and one time my dad saw it and he's like, a brilliant guy, insightful. And he was like, I gave that to you. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, no. And he's like, well, in Afghanistan, if you got in the traffic, that means you were getting ambushed. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. And he told me about how he almost killed somebody like back in the States, like a week after deployment, because he was so geared up. 
Wow. And I was like, oh, and then you just walk into a house with children, <laughs> you wow. know? So it's yeah. like a very educational experience all around too. Uh, but yeah, it's intense. really, yeah, it's really, it well, was already yeah. in my art. The And the generational stuff just gets passed down and recycled yeah. in so many ways. And uh, yeah. yeah, I feel like all of, everything I write tends to have some sort of trauma processed from my childhood. Even, even the like really broad comedy stuff, it's it, the root of it is yeah. always some sort of trauma. Absolutely. What time of day do you, do you have like a, t like for me, I, I write best or most earnestly because I wouldn't say best because I can write at night, but right away in the morning after all my little morning routine, I get into it and I could be at the computer till like 1 p.m. if if it's called that day. Yeah, I don't have much of a schedule. I'm pretty much like whenever I get the inspiration, which sometimes can be all day, every day, and then sometimes mm -hmm. it could be a week where I don't do anything. But I feel like I have a I, I tend to I tend to get it. My my issue is, and I, I know you probably feel this similarly, it's like I have trouble uh, going from project to project because sometimes I'll have an idea for a, a script for a feature thing mm -hmm. and I'll get like really into that for a few days and then I'll be like oh wait I want to do this chapter mm -hmm. for this book or I want to I got this idea for a kid's book or whatever the other thing mm -hmm. is and then my brain wants to go there and so over time I just tried to follow wherever the inspiration is so sometimes I will set aside something that I've been working on for a while and then just go to the new thing but one of the things that I'm most proud of is that I'm able to finish because I have a lot of friends and I'm sure you do too, where a lot of writer friends are people who are wanting to write or they're, they start those things and they aren't able to finish. And so I'm always able to get back to something, even if I take a week or two off of it, mm -hmm. I'll go back to that script or book or whatever. And I always get to the finish line. Um, it might not be the greatest draft. It might be something that I have to edit quite a bit, but but I do think that's one of the things I'm most proud of because I just see it all the time. Anytime I talk to people who are writers, you know, you talk to them and they start a script or they start a TV show or book or whatever, and not a lot of people finish it. So I think I always tell anyone who wants to write, like, just finish that thing. Don't worry about it being a perfect draft, but finish it. And you're already like way ahead of everyone else because most people won't finish. Oh, totally. I mean, my first few features, I didn't finish because. I didn't prepare myself right. And then I learned how to do that. And I started pumping them out like crazy, but you're exactly right. It is like just finishing something cuts out like 90% of, I don't want to say the competition, but essentially a colleague. Yeah. But kind of right. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone doesn't finish or you hear so often somebody say, Oh, I started this thing. That's about X, Y, and Z. And then you see them in six months and you say, how did this thing go with X, mm -hmm. Y, and Z? I was so excited to read it. And then there, there is nothing. And, and I get that because sometimes you're writing something and you just think it's terrible or you put it aside for a couple of weeks and you come back to it. But I always think the first draft is supposed to be terrible and then you keep yeah. going with it. And I, I'm never too precious. I mean, you and I are, we always check in with each other and like send each other stuff. I never feel mm -hmm. bad if I'm sending you or another friend a draft that's not perfect because yeah. I want to get your feedback and I then and vice versa hopefully I, I don't ever feel like oh this is shitty I can't share it with anyone because I know that's going to shoot me in the foot because I need to finish it absolutely oh my god do you have different approaches for 
different material or is it all sort of, or is it even like I'm writing this and I'll find out if it's an essay or a script or. Yeah. Sometimes something amorph. I mean, I mentioned that groundling sketch that I never anticipated yeah. being a chapter in a book and yeah, it, that's amazing. It was, or or my I have a book coming out in October that's a holiday collection of short stories, and there's a script that I wrote that I th- always thought was really funny, like a feature film set in high school, and I was able to make that into a chapter. And so I I try to just look where where things can fit, and sometimes I think something's a script and it ends up being a chapter in a book, and other times it might be a book that's a better app for a script or something like that, but I try to just be adaptable and follow um, wherever the inspiration leads. Even with like writing a script or something, I've never been good about doing outlines. I know that's like a big thing. I always have an idea of where I want it to end and I know Mm -hmm. the characters that I want to write about, but then I always think it's important to let them tell me where they want to go. So if I have a good as long as I know before I sit down to write, I've worked it out in my head enough of this is the character I want to focus on. I feel like I just want to let them show me where to go. Cause sometimes you'll be writing something and you're in your head. You think they should be at a concert on page 50. And then you realize, no, they shouldn't be at a concert. That doesn't make sense. So I think it's always good to leave space to let, the story tell you where it wants to go. And I think that even extends into like what format, whether it's book or movie or TV show or whatever, um, but being flexible with that. But I, so I tend to go in knowing the characters and like sort of, Oh, I want to tell this story about um, whatever it is. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, you're in good company. I know Quentin Tarantino does that. Oh, does he not? You mean not outline? Uh, I don't know about the outline, but he says, he knows the end and he has an outline until like, he's like always by like page 15, they're doing their own thing. And I just give over to the process and I'm like, wow, like that is a person who really knows his people. I love, I love just letting it. Yeah. The characters say where they want to go. I was just writing something and it I, I wrote this garage sale scene and it was just not, where I expected the characters to go, but then I love the scene now. And I'm, I'm so grateful that I just was flexible enough. Cause I think sometimes people who do an outline can get too tied to it. And, and maybe it works for some people. It just doesn't work for me. I, I think sort of my version of outlining is just letting it rattle around in my head until it has to come out. So maybe not writing it down, but spending a lot of time um, kind of working it out that way. No, that makes sense right now. I'm, um, I don't know if you ever do this. This may be like so dorky or whatever, but I give myself writing assignments like cuz like I was getting a lot of high level feedback about 3 years ago and, I, and basically it was like you know, I don't I feel like maybe even a lot of people get this, but this is what they were telling me. They were saying you have great ideas, your scripts are tight, da, da, da. it was all good, but they were like you could go deeper in your character. Basically is what I got. And so for a year, last year, all I did was focus on character development. And it was hard. And it sucked. I wasn't good at it, so I feel. And because uh, I couldn't do what you could do, which is kind of like shoot from the hip in a sense. Because I know a few people who write like that, who are like, I know the characters, I know the process, I know the end. Let me write that way. I have to be 
like one of my outlines is like 77 pages but it's like you know photos and music and colors and it's like I never look back I write forward so I might have like 20 beat sheets in it because it's forced me to like rewrite and play so by the time I get to the draft which I just look at as like a placeholder in order of ideas so I don't even look at it like it's representable material it's just like these are ideas in order and so I'm just so basically I did that last year and this year I'm trying to shoot for the hip on the script and it's been a blast just kind of being like ooh, and I'm starting to see it um unfold because of the work I've been doing on myself that's try right. and get better in these weaker areas. Yeah. Everyone kind of does it different. I think it there's no rules. And I sometimes get frustrated when I see on, on Twitter or sometimes you'll read things from writers and they have a very specific way. Oh, you have to do it this way or that way. And I think when it comes to creative writing, however you get to the end result is great. And everyone has a different mm. kind of process. But sometimes you might read a screenwriting book and they'll say, oh, this has to happen on page... 30 and it's just Mm -hmm. not it's not how it is especially now where every everything we consume now is is built differently than it was 20 years ago not everything is like a network uh, one hour drama or or whatever there's so much play that's happening within the confines of television or film and so i think you narratively don't have to follow those rules you have to finish and get something that is good but it could be it could look different than i think we were maybe taught in film school or something like that. Absolutely. And what I've learned in that sort of idea is that it's better. You're going to have more fun, AKA success. If you know the rules before you break them, because I have friends and what I've noticed is they disrespect the rules. Like they're like, no, I don't even want to learn them. And I'm like, I totally get it. But now my life's harder working with you. Mm-hmm. And two, you're going to luck into it rather than maybe into it, into it. Right. right. Do you consider, like, do you write every day? Because I know I see that on Twitter and stuff like, you should be writing every day. And writing no. for me is like walking, yeah. thinking and working out. I do that every day for sure. I can't help it. Yeah. But to, I actually feel like to sit down I look at it almost like religion in a way. Like I am, this is serious. Like this is committed as being right here. It's not, but I just sometimes got in my head, like, am I supposed to be putting pen to paper every day? It's like, no, I don't think I totally agree with you. And I think, yeah, it's stuff rattling around in my head and me working out something in my head or what story I want to tell in my head while I'm at the gym or while I'm on a walk or at the grocery store or whatever. Like that is just as as important if not more than me sitting down at my laptop i think if you're so if you're a new writer who's maybe not able to have the discipline of sitting at the computer i think those kinds of things could be helpful of saying i need to write for an hour each day or whatever the magic number is i think that's helpful if you're just trying to get in a routine of it but i think if you're someone who knows that they can sit down at a computer and write then some of your writing's just going to be while you're going about your day and and sort of obsessing over those details in your head of okay well who's this character or what what do i want the end to look like or or whatever that's so important to write and also to live your life too because mm-hmm. when you're having these experiences they'll come out in your writing in in so many different ways and so it's 
yeah, it's important to like go out and experience things and meet people and talk to people and see different kinds of people. And then it'll make your writing stronger. But if you're brand new, I do think it's important to like kind of learn how to sit at a computer. Oh, that's great. Because if you build that habit, then you already know you're going to get better because obviously you're going to keep sitting. And, and it takes forever. Habit, don't don't yeah. you feel like there's so many... I look at scripts I wrote 10 years ago, 15 years ago or something. It takes a lot of practice to get stuff where suddenly you start looking at those scripts. I don't know if we were, this was before we started recording or not, but when we were talking and your scripts just get better and better and you just got to get through a lot of shit before you get some good stuff. And then a certain point comes along where you're looking at stuff and you're like, oh my God, like this is actually good like this is or you're noticing your meetings are going better the pitches are going better and the mm-hmm. feedback is going better and you're looking it's just starts to click but it takes a lot of you got to sludge through a lot of stuff and the only way to do that is to to get your stuff to get these stories written in some way and then move on to the next one don't get too attached or don't think because you wrote one thing that's the end all be all because that might have just been the the um, conduit to get you to the next script and you might have learned from that first script like oh I I love how this character was kind of ballsy and I want to mm-hmm. take that and apply it to the next one or whatever it is and so yeah you just got to keep going and it Absolutely. takes a while oh my god it takes so long and it's like um, I have a few and you'll see where I'm going with this but I had a few uh, professional poker player friends. Like one guy took fourth in the world at the WSOP, which is like their Super Bowl. And I remember asking him like, because I played poker, but like in a jokey way with my family every five years, right? So I'm like aware of the game. Like people are aware of writing, they write. And I was like, how do you see poker versus how do I see it? Like, can you give me an analogy, a metaphor? And uh, he was like, I look at it like we're all making the same puzzle, but I have the box (laughs) Mm. and you don't. And that's how I feel like the difference between someone who's just starting writing and like where I feel like you are at or maybe I'm at now where I'm actually playing the game now. Whereas before I was just like scratching the surface to even get into the game. Because now I'm like thinking about really what I would call high level writing things where i'm like it's like granular it's like a string i'm playing rather than just like i just gotta get this scene out or like not really understanding the function of a scene even and it's it's been so it made me like fall in love deeper with writing yeah if that makes sense totally totally i think as you do it more you just i don't know you find a different kind of love for it and i've never i i always knew that i wanted to be a storyteller and that that was that was sort of my um non-negotiable I had to get these stories out and I don't think I'd ever be happy even sometimes scripts will just be for you or it won't be something that ultimately will go anywhere I mean but I think that's okay and I know that I can't I need to tell these stories somewhere so if it's just ends up being a script for me fine who cares but hopefully hopefully some of the other ones find their way to people but um yeah it's challenging and there's a whole separate business part of things too that i think is a whole other clusterfuck and 
<laughs> and challenges to get over. Cause even then, once you start to have stuff that you really like, there's a whole slew of uh, hurdles to get it in front of people. And, and I think people, a lot of young writers or new writers can get turned off by that because you could write five scripts that you can get options somewhere, purchase somewhere that never make it to screen or that, um, you, you can't even get a pitch for or whatever it is. They can stop at any moment. And so sometimes people get discouraged by that. But um, as long as you're yeah. someone who has to tell the stories that you just have to keep writing. I don't know. I don't know. No, I agree. And I feel like it's um, it's sort of what we're talking about offline. Like if this is, if you're putting all your eggs literally in the one basket of the one project you're writing, like, you're probably in for a world of hurt unless you get incredibly lucky, which I don't find the best strategy. Right. Right. Like, so I try and go into things and we talked about this earlier, but like, I'm trying to write a hundred projects. I'm trying to make a hundred things. I'm trying to do a hundred things. And Um, it's fun as a creative muscle to like dip into different stuff and then see what sticks somewhere. I don't know. And this whole industry is a a mess right now and there's a writer strike going on. And I know you feel similarly where it's, it's frustrating. Like I'm, I certainly want everything for the WGA and, but as newer writers, it's very, um, it's fresh. It's hard. It's just, it's a hard, uh, to put a stop on things and yeah. um, you know, I support the strike, so I'm not trying to sound like I don't support it, but no, it's, it's, it's both, just, both yeah. exist at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It's like we, we start to have some momentum and I had a f- few projects that are kind of at a standstill right now. And we're just hoping um, that they're able to work out a deal very soon and we can get moving, but yeah, it's just a long slog and it's uh, yeah. crazy to think everything kind of just stops for, three, four, five months or however long this will be. And yeah. it is what it is. But yeah, also writers need to get paid. Yeah, no, it's it. I also support the strike because I feel like I'm just choosing to look at it like I did with COVID early on. I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. This is crazy, scary. But I'm going to choose to believe that when I reflect on this time, it'll be the best time of my life. Yeah, and, and it it'll all work. I'll be for the best too. It yeah. it happens because it's supposed to happen, and and obviously things needed to change. And yeah, um, and I yeah. I I, th- I don't you know you look at like this is what I do because you know people lose their shit over AI, and I'm just not one of those people. I'm a more like the Chinese fable, like wait and see. Because, I love this Chinese know, farmer that you keep mentioning. Yeah, <laughs> it really helps me. I love it. it really helps me. And uh, well, one, you know, like China gets a lot of hate too. And I got to, I got to rep some some good Chinese people, obviously, because there's a lot of them. And um, for me, it's like I don't know. We don't have to get into the AI stuff, but it's more just like choosing to. What's your believe that it's all working out for me? What's your dream? Is there one project that you have that as your dream to get on screen that hasn't yet? Oh, that, that hasn't. you can share. Man, great question. Just sort of feeling into it. So I was hired to. Um, this actually happened three weeks after my father. I was having, I was hired like six months prior to this date to shoot a pilot. 
and I ended up doing a page one rewrite and falling so in love. I was hired like gun for hire to shoot a, a teaser. So like sales material, essentially. And I'd gotten hired word of mouth, ended up falling in love with this EP, just like a generous, lovely guy in his mid 60s from LA, got it. Literally was like carte blanche, like, Sean, here's the money, go. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, you're literally letting me do it? Like, okay. And it was a little scary to get what you asked for, you know. And um, it's the best work I've ever done. And it's called Helmet. And so we're in the process of pitching it now. And we're actually That's the teaser for... I saw, right? Yeah, you got, yeah I yeah. saw that. Okay, it was so great. Yeah. Oh, thank so you so much. Yeah, so in a lot of ways, that's a dream for me because of the people who are in it. And it's also interesting because we're having meetings with like huge money who are into cars outside of Hollywood. And mm -hmm. I'm like, am I about to do an indie TV show? Like I've never really heard of that, but okay. So in a way that's the dream for me is to be, I don't want to say an auteur in a sense, like always on my own. I would, I know there's amazing people in the studio system and would love to work with there too, but I love the idea. What I've realized talking to like my friends in the studio system is like they're tied to individual investors too. Mm. So it's all the same at the end of the day. If you can get your own investor, then you're basically what a studio is these days. So um, that's my dream. Helmet. Yeah, it would be oh, the that's amazing. right direct showrun. I really feel like down the line, I could be a killer showrunner. And even studio president someday, depending on what the you know studios look like, ten yeah. twenty years. What uh, about well, you? I hope, I hope that happens because yeah, I got a chance to see your um, the portion that you filmed for Helmet. It was so good. Uh, oh, I don't know. There's like a, yeah, there's a few projects there. I have a few things that I hope will go one day. There's a female ensemble comedy that I wrote. That's sort of my version of a First Wives Club that I love. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> there's a um a rom i wrote a rom-com that's like more of a traditional kind of throwback rom-com to the 90s rom-coms and i'm really hoping them. that goes um there's only yeah, every one multi-cam on that i mean maybe no abbott elementary is not multi-cam but what is it the neighborhood like, oh yeah yeah. yeah that's good i don't know yeah but so there's i, like I mean more. we'll see how everything shakes out after the um I almost just said the pandemic after the writer's strike, hopefully everything will shake out. Um, but yeah, I just, I just, I tend to write a lot of like older women and gay men. Like that's my sweet spot or my bread and butter. And so. Would you direct? Yeah. No, I don't think, I mean, I think eventually I would like to direct. Yeah, for sure. I think you'd be great at it. Thank you. I would love to. Yeah. I, most of the stuff I, I tend to write a role for me in them. And yeah. it's always like the, like the side, the, gay neighbor or something you know like it's not the lead it's like the sure that's the like most the bonnie fun. hunt character who comes in and it's like <laughs> sassy or the brother uh, she's amazing <laughs> yeah i love her um so i hope um yeah i'd love to do that but i think down the line i'd love to direct and yeah that'd be fun so switching we can jump back anywhere anytime but so with the podcast you've had like truly a who's who's of guests um, I know you haven't had Mariah Carey on, but who else would starstruck you or has, has that ever happened to you? If yeah. you meet so many people, I'm sure on occasion you're like, holy shit. 
For sure. Actually, just last night I interviewed Pamela Anderson, and that was Whoa. like wild to me because um, it obviously she's such a legend. And I interviewed her and her son Brandon and the director of her documentary. I don't know if you saw it on Netflix called um, Love Pamela. It's a fantastic documentary if you haven't seen it. But um, I was so nervous to meet her, and it was um, just she was incredible and so sweet and nice. But I was nervous to meet her because I remember my older brother Gary like had her poster on his wall, and yeah, of sure. course I remember I told her the <laughs> story. I, uh, I told her the story. Like I have this vivid memory of my brother Gary uh, renting barbed wire from the video store, and I borrowed it from him. And I told her this, that I I loved it, but he was watching it because he thought she was hot. And I was like, oh, I just thought you were, like, fierce. You know, like, I didn't. Yeah. I yeah. just thought it was, you yeah. were cool. Um, but so, yeah, she was cool. To, she was cool. And then also speaking of, I, I told this story before, but my um, Jennifer Love Hewitt, very early on, I had her Whoa. poster on my wall, too. Can't I, wait. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, and I loved the I Know What You Did Last Summer movies. And I remember she came to my apartment. Like, we live uh, somewhere else now, but my old apartment, you, you've been there. Yeah. And she came over with a – she had just gotten a puppy, and she came over for my podcast. And she knocked on the door, and I answered it. It was just Jennifer Love Hewitt with a puppy. And I was like, this is so weird because I had her poster <laughs> on my wall. I thought I was, like, in love. She was probably the last woman that I was in love with was her as a preteen. And I yeah. just was obsessed with her. I thought she was so – and so her showing up with a puppy, I was like, what is going on? So – yeah, she. So there's been all sorts of people along the way too. Uh, Drew Barrymore was like wild to me, and I, Dude, I legends. Yeah, like I, I don't know, and and such a as such a pop culture junkie in the '90s and stuff. It's just weird. I'm like, man, I remember going to see uh, Charlie's Angels as a teenager <laughs> on like opening night, and I don't know. It's just weird, and I yeah, and I have since been working with her and her. A production company on something and i'm just like this is weird it's weird as someone who loved this stuff as a kid i i can't even imagine it but no that and that makes sense to me because you once told me like early days on your podcast because if i recall like somehow jordan and i were like your first or yeah, second jordan was my very first guest jordan wisely <laughs> yeah, yeah but like the the audio was trash or something and but the amount of saying, audio that I've had to trash over the years that, you know, cause it's, as you know, you said you're 16 episodes in, it's like, yeah. there's just always a technical issue. And if you're starting out, I, I didn't know anything about technology stuff. No, I'm asking and Google and YouTube are my friends. Yeah. It's hard. And, and Riverside is not. Yeah. Sorry if you're listening Riverside, but uh, <laughs> do you ever like what? What's like draining? Do you have to, have you ever had guests? And I'm sure you have, because I think you've had hundreds at this point where you're really having to carry the conversation. You, you didn't expect it or you're like, wow, they're really not having a great day. And you have to sort of frame the interview in a different way. Like how did you learn some of these things in this really brand new industry? Like, yeah, right? I just sort of figured it out. I, I always try to just have guests on that I'm interested in the times that I've, as my show has grown 
more PR people will reach out to me and say, will you have this person on or that person? And occasionally it's tempting. I'll, I'll be like, oh, their show's really big, even though I don't really love it or I know who they are and I, I don't really love their work or know their work or whatever. And so the few times that I've given into that and had some of those guests that I'm not really aware of, those are when the interviews are the worst. And I leave there and I'm like, well, why did I even do that? Why did I agree to do that? Because it just ended up being a challenge. But then there's other times where you go in and you think someone's going to be great. You know, last, so last night with Pamela Anderson, she was really shy and she had said, she's like, oh, talk to them more than me, meaning the director of her movie and her son. And it was but hard. She's like the, the right. She's, she's the draw. The so <laughs> yeah. in, in my head that it, it was right before we started too. And so in my head, the whole time I was thinking like the audience wants her. I know that. And she doesn't want to talk about this. She doesn't, she wants, she wants the focus to be on the director and her son, who was the producer of this movie. And so it's that balance. And so I was really in my head and ultimately it turned out great. I I thought, but um, it's trying to balance that. And I also find that very challenging when there's more than one, there's been times I've interviewed, gosh, there was one time where I interviewed the whole Remember that show, The Real World, uh, the season one cast of The Real World on MTV? They did like a reunion series. Yeah, they did a reunion Mm. series. And I interviewed them all over Zoom all together. And that's really challenging because you're trying to like get to everyone. And also the technology aspect of Zoom makes it hard. But so I prefer to just do a one-on-one because it's it's way harder. Or that one time I did, uh, Mila Kunis and uh, Juliette Lewis were together and they <laughs> asked if I would interview them together because they were in a movie together. But then it ultimately turned out okay too, but it was challenging because it's like, well, I just, you, it's hard to focus on one or the other. And, Especially those and then, two are so different. I want to ask them way different questions. And I don't want to talk about the thing that they're promoting i want to talk about i don't know that 70s show or with juliette lewis i just want to talk about this movie called the other sister which was with diane keaton great (laughs) the craziest movie diane keaton i love her i love her she's a dream she's a dream i saw her at an airport in north carolina like three weeks ago i literally was standing next to her in baggage (gasps) and i was like diane keaton oh my god you know i'm never gonna so i just played it was she wearing a tie Dude, I, that's so funny you bring that up because I was like, this is the most Diane Keaton Diane Keaton could look like. She had like a beautiful hat and like uh, basically a chic, like, you know, work suit on and was just so amiable, like talking to everybody. Yeah, I, I mean, she looked like a dream. It was amazing. I love her. I love her. Her and I are, I don't know if I'm friends with her or who runs her social media account, but whoever runs it, we DM sometimes. And I've been trying to get her on my show, but I love her so much. Uh, um, oh, also, yeah. you mentioned Starstruck, and I do just have to quickly say this is a big name <laughs> drop, but I've interviewed a handful of Muppets before, and I'm most nervous around Muppets, and <laughs> I'm most excited. Like, to me, that's like the dream of, to just speak with Muppets all the time. And I've only done the Muppets on Zoom. This last time, oh. I was it was supposed to be an in-person thing, and then it got shifted. <laughs> but that, to me, is like the peak of everything because i love Dude. the muppets and so yeah congrats on P- that thank you thank you that's, that's the big amazing name yeah yeah it is yeah, yeah it is oh i mean I'm i just, just miss the days the logistics of, of that person <laughs> i miss the days of like remember in the 90s when 
the Muppets would appear on talk shows and stuff. Like, I just (laughs) miss that. I miss when they would just pop in certain places. And, yeah, it's even over Zoom, it's magical. It's like you're talking to not a puppet. You're talking to the um, Miss Piggy or Gonzo. It's like (laughs) them. And even on Zoom, it's like you can hear... I don't know if I should... I guess it doesn't matter, but... um, I did the Electric Mayhem band, which is like Animal and Janice and like the, you know, the wow. Muppet band. Yeah. And halfway through, they have to like cut to relax their arms and stuff. I hope I'm not. <laughs> oh, like, that makes Disney's going to get mad at me for saying that. <laughs> anyway, but so you're, you can hear them in their regular voices talking during that time over Zoom and it's cut for air, obviously. But um, still, even with that, it's like when they're up, you're talking to real Muppets. Whoa. Like, it's they're real. And so Whoa. it's just wild. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. I bet on so many levels. That would be really cool, man. Did you watch God. this? I, you got to watch that new show. on. There's a new Muppet show on Disney+, Plus, and I, it's the best Muppet thing they've done in probably a decade. Since that Jason Segel movie. <laughs> it's like, it's the best thing they've done. You have to watch it. All right, I will. Yeah, you'll oh like it. get hot, get a little stoned, and yeah. put on. It's called Muppet Mayhem or Muppets Mayhem. Just get a little high and watch it. I promise you'll think it's so funny. <laughs> okay, I will absolutely. What is um? Do you have any guilty pleasure shows? Like for me, I mean, I know that's kind of your. I don't want to say your industry, so you might at times be like, "Dude, I'm actually tired of watching that." For me, it's like Hoarders because it's terrifying. And British Bake Off, because it's just so sweet. Like, I'm like, oh, yeah. how are these people? The casting is so good. Uh, do you yeah, have Matt any shows like British. that right now? Oh, Matt yeah? loves British Bake Off. I don't feel guilty about anything, because I think also I cover <laughs> a lot of, like, trash TV on my show. Remember when I made you watch <laughs> Vanderpump Rules, and I was, like, trying yeah. to explain Lala to you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> It's like which, that show's really having a renaissance right now because there's like a whole yeah. big scandal happening. Um, but yeah, like those are the shows I watch essentially for a living now. So I, I don't feel guilty about it. Oh, anymore. that makes sense. But, oh, but I, I think yeah. that's what I, I was, that's what I was going to say earlier. I probably just tangented it away from it is like when you first started doing your podcast and things were starting to cook for you, I remember being like, oh my God, that's amazing. And you were like, I'd be doing this with or without the success. I love this. And I thought that helped me. That reminded me to ground into like what I love and don't worry about the rest. Cause like you could have never guessed that this was going to become what it was. Right. No, not at all. I mean, I started the podcast from my apartment, from the bedroom and, and even when I was booking, you know, when you mentioned you and Jordan and people, friends who were coming on, I didn't have, a Rolodex of people. I didn't have a booker, a talent booker or anything. I didn't have a proven show. So I was asking friends to come on. And then in between friends, I was just talking by myself because I wanted to keep putting out the show. And so I was just doing, talking about the things that I liked and that tended to be reality TV and um, pop culture and stuff like that. So I, yeah, it was a mix of that. And then it just kept growing. But I, I think it always was like going back to that thing I said, where it's like following what you like and then you'll find the people that like similar things. And so I just, I always try to hold on to that. Like whether it be guests or topics or whatever, it's like, well, am I into that? Cause if I'm into it, I could talk about it. Cause I know that I would be talking about it with friends anyway. So 
uh, if I try to force it, then it's not going to be good or it's going to be too rigid or I don't know. So you just got to follow the things that you like and then other people like it. I've actually found that I look at it like if you build your foundation on lies, like lying to yourself or lying to others about what you love, and then you're successful, you have to keep that fucking foundation going. Or Mm. when it drops, like, you know, maybe a bad example, but Michael Jordan, he has this persona of like, I'm that motherfucker who like fucking is mean to you and will beat you. And it's like, he can't be like that always. Like he's probably got times where he wants to relax and just be a goofy little silly guy, but he's trapped himself in the persona. That's and why so he did Space Jam. That's right. <laughs> a little. He's like the, most, <laughs> the least silly person in the whole movie. So yeah. That'd be the other but, dream is to do like a <laughs> like a live action Looney Tunes. Like that'd be my other like oh, ultimate you'd goal. Be so good. Oh my god, that. be the best. Uh, yeah, I think you have to follow the things that you like and be honest and authentic to whatever it is that you do. And I, so oftentimes, especially because uh, on my podcast, I cover a lot of Bravo and Housewives and stuff like that. And there are so many people in that space, so many brilliant people who do Bravo podcasts. And sometimes, occasionally, there'll be a new one or something, and it, it almost feels like they're doing what they think a successful one does. And I suppose this is true in any sort of field or, mm. or segment of um, area of a field, but it, it, the best ones are like the long-term ones. When you look at some, there's a show called watch what crap ends or a show called bitch sesh <laughs> who cover Bravo and, or, you know, the ones who are most authentic are the ones that tend to go the longest or, or to be successful. And I think sometimes you could get trapped in, into this thing of like looking at someone who is successful and saying, okay, well, what's their formula? Let me try to recreate it. And I think there's value in maybe taking some of the things from, from a successful blueprint and pulling it and saying, okay, I'm going to apply this to mine, but ultimately you have to be authentic to you and, and find your own blueprint maybe while utilizing some of the things you might learn from someone, but don't try to copy because the minute you copy, you're just, you're diminishing the results. You're yeah. Yeah, and if you think about it, like, identical twins don't have the same path. So how can we expect to have the same path as an unrelated stranger? Yeah. And even, like, because I've certainly fallen into the comparison trap. I mean, in my film school, I talk about it. I call it the, the anomaly trap. Because, like, when we were going through our theater repertory program, they were like, this guy's a legend. He never slept. This guy, he booked a series regular without a headshot. So all these actors are coming up, including me. We're like, I guess I don't need a headshot. I showed up to an agency meeting without a headshot and a resume. She goes, that's the only thing we asked for. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going, oh, sweating. I'm like, I'm not that guy, right? I'm not him, and that's okay. He's not me. And what I realized as well is when I was comparing, it was also putting me like on that timeline. Well, they did this by 30. Oh, yeah, yeah. And what I've really, like, the wisdom I've come to is, like, when you're not following anybody, there is no timeline because right. you're on your own path. Literally, you're the one cutting the machete through the jungle. You're not down a path that somebody else has taken because you're your own person. And yeah. that's been really helpful to, like, let go again of the time element. I know, by the 30, time I element, have to, yeah. 
that's a clusterfuck even, I mean, in personal reasons too. It's like you, I, I, I noticed, especially I have a lot of girlfriends who they get trapped in that. I, and I, a lot of it is biological clock stuff. And, mm-hmm. but I, I think in, especially women in their thirties, they get tied to, Oh, well, I'm not married or, or have kids by this time. And, and I think that's a slippery slope in it. I understand it, but it, I, I, yeah, I think you have to let go of that. I also was just watching, I'm always so fascinated about those stories of people who are like older in age and like found, you know, they became yeah. this very successful artist at 70 or 80 or whatever. Mm. And I was just watching this Lucille Ball documentary and I didn't realize uh, that she was 40 when I Love Lucy started, which I don't know what wow. I thought, but she was 40 when that started. And and wow. she was 40, I think 40. 40 or 40, that was the same time she had her first child and then she had Ricky, I think, when she was 41. Um, and that was back in the 50s. And I don't know. I've, I, I'm always interested in those stories and I, I think it sort of goes against what we just said of like forgetting about the age thing. But I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I think it just proves you, you can... The thing that really hit for her hit around 40, 41 um, in terms of yeah. career and then also even just her her... Uh, parenting. I mean, and she's like, I don't want to say she's the OG, but she's one of the first real trailblazers, especially female trailblazers. I mean, my God. Yeah, there's a great I documentary. Think predates her. I oh, think Amy where? Poehler, Amy Poehler directed it. It's on Amazon, I think. Uh, there was also that Nicole Kidman movie, which I, I sort of liked. It was a little <laughs> wonky. But I remember the documentary came out around the same time and I, I didn't want to watch the documentary because I just watched the movie and I thought, what more can they do? But I highly recommend the documentary. It's great. Oh, cool. I'll definitely check that out. Um, it's like, you turned me on, you returned me on to Golden Girls. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I'll just watch it and I'm just like, wow, they are killing They're so it. fucking funny, Sean. And the writing <laughs> on that is so good. It's and, brilliant. Yeah. It's brilliant. The Arthur, like, I mean, talk about an acting masterclass, all four of them. But there's moments where B. Arthur just gives these looks. And <laughs> I sometimes will watch sitcoms now, and I'm like, none of them can do, none of them even can hold a candle to B. Arthur. Like, the way that she would just get a laugh off of a look, off of a reaction shot. No one's yeah. doing that anymore. I don't know. No. Re- no one's doing reaction shots anymore. And all of B. Arthur, half yeah. of her, what was funny on her... For, for that show was her reactions based on these other people. And so, I don't know, I watch stuff now. I'm like, no one's doing it like those four women were. Oh, no, the last real sitcom that I obsess over is Frasier. Like, and they're rebooting that. Are they? Yeah, yeah. Wow, wow. I, I hope. I hope it's good. You know what? Uh, this has sprung be. to mind. Succession does reactions. So they're mm. taking it out of the, like, if you really watch it, because I've been studying it, you know, trying to really, like, figure out how they do in the production of it. Um, all they do is live in the tiny moments that these characters are going. I mean, there's so much improv, apparently, and I, I really love that show. It's but so good. To your point, like, it's almost, I, I've heard this from editors over the years. They're like, I need more reaction shots. And I'm like, oh, because they're like, acting is reacting. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that contextualizes what was just said, the reaction. I'm like, oh, I had to learn that. Some of the biggest laughs in the Golden Girls, or even, 
I think something like I loved Will and Grace. There's moments in that where the big laughs are the reactions off the mm. crazy characters, and and those crazy characters aren't as crazy if they're not being reacted to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There has to be something to. This is the world we're in, aka like the straight man or whatever it is. Yeah, an improv. Wait, are you, speaking uh, of right behind. <laughs> I have, did you watch ALF at all? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I recently, this is an ALF puppet. Um, I recently rewatched it and most of ALF is just ALF reacting and it's a puppet. I don't know why this interview keeps going back to puppets, but uh, okay. I think even the puppets are, um, they would do close-ups on ALF even like so you would see the puppet react and the brilliant puppeteers on Muppets or Alf were able to give a reaction in a puppet but yeah there's moments and I was just rewatching it and I'm like oh man there's so many Alf reaction shots where it's the puppet reacting to the humans which isn't what you would think would happen I gotta check that out yeah yeah. because that's just a master class in storytelling if they can right like if you really think about it they're just real I could talk about Alf forever. I went in this deep, dark (laughs) hole about it because I was so fascinated. I liked it when I was really little. I sort of remembered it and I decided to rewatch it. And um, then I started researching because as you know, when I become obsessed with something, it's like, and I got to learn everything about it and I I can't stop thinking about it for months. And so I went in this Alf spiral and I had learned like the other, the dad on Alf was like a trained theater actor and like did not want to be there and like had a really hard time. And then they had to build out the set so that the Alf puppet guy could like, you know, be it. And so the main human actors would like fall on set all the time because there were all these holes for the puppet. And so I, it's just so fascinating to me and so funny that like this trained theater actor, I just imagined him like falling on the falling in a hole um, on set of Alf and being like, how the fuck did I get here? (laughs) Well, think about like Brian Cranston and Malcolm in the middle. He's like doing like the craziest, most like they're literally like, we're going to shame and embarrass you every episode. Oh, man. And he's just like the most classically trained, brilliant, dramatic actor ever. Wait, Brian it's Cranston, like, I also just learned, played the voices. Is that who you said? Brian Cranston, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He did the vo- He did a lot of the voices of the monsters for the original Power Rangers. Whoa. Yeah. Dude, I used to and watch that all the time. I did too. I was obsessed with that as a kid. And he yeah. also, in the new reboot movie, he was Zordon because he was he had worked on the original as like the monster voices. Oh, and I think one of the characters is like named after him or something too, but I don't want to misspeak on this sure, sure. court of record. Oh, but that that's a great that's a great segue for me. Just I don't know, how's your time right now? We're at I'm good. 10. I have like 12 minutes. I can go till two. Is Great. that okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, how do you handle, and you don't have to get too specific or anything, but are you ever like, ooh, I can't talk about this, or I'm scared to talk about this because people are sensitive, my audience. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, I, I try to be careful with what I say. Um, I also edit my show, so I... I tend to hear things Your back. Full control. I mostly just worry. Um, I mostly the main concern is like sometimes I'll just think I I know what I meant, but I can 
almost anticipate like what other people are going to twist it to be. So I think that's the hardest part for me is like, I'll sometimes be editing it and, and I'll think a joke is really funny or I'll think something's really funny, but I'm like, it's not even worth it because I know they're going to try to take that out of contest or, or twist it in some way. And so that is the most frustrating to me when I think something's really funny or that I have to lose it because I'm like, I just don't even want to deal with that. And I think uh, when I cover a lot of the Bravo shows, the, the, we we're obsessed with Bravo shows. Like the audience are fans of those shows. Like we love it. And we get really heated and passionate about it. And so that's the other thing. Sometimes when I'll be talking about someone, I'll be like, I don't want to deal with, if I say something shitty about some housewife or something, it's like, I don't want to deal with people yelling at me because they love that person or, or vice versa. Like I love them and they hate them. But I, I always try to go back to like what I like and go my give my opinion and stuff. But those are the kinds of things that I, I'd say I worry about. And most of my stuff, like the the other thing I realized is like I have a dirty mouth. Like I swear a lot more than I thought, but I I tend to have like a silly sense of humor. So there's not very often where I'm editing and I'm I say something that is offensive or something. Most of the time it's just I worry about people misconstruing it, but for the most part, I, I, I don't most, my sense of humor is sort of similar to like Muppety humor. Like I, mm-hmm. I don't really, yeah, I don't know if I don't really say anything offensive, but maybe I, maybe I'm, I don't know. No, I've always sure known you as like now. a very, <laughs> very honest, meaning like you're not afraid to go and talk about a subject, but you always, lead with like curiosity and an open heart it's it never has ever felt malicious even when we're having you know dicey fun yeah yeah. You know, it's always like from a good place and it's always obviously a joke it's almost a cottage industry to try and take things out of context these days yeah so. and i just want people to have a fun and and i want people to just listen to my show and laugh and check out for an hour or whatever so yeah, that's always the goal. So if anything sort of takes away from that goal, then that might be something I edit or, or worry about. But yeah, but it is true. Like yeah. the longer I've been doing it since the end of 2017. And there's just wow. times where sometimes I can almost predict, even if I if I leave something in, I'll almost predict. I'll be like, oh, someone's going to DM me about that or mm-hmm. someone's going to uh, have something to say about that. Do you have it in seasons or do you do a continuous year-round podcast? Just like how do you... Year-round. So I, I haven't even really taken a break. Um, I started in 2017 and I'm very proud of this fact, but I've never had one week where I've never released a podcast. I think there was like one, wow. one, a couple, one or two weeks where I maybe released a, what, what I call Patreon, which is like my bonus episode. So it wasn't on the main feed, but I've never had one week without anything since 2017. And wow. I really, I had friends who are successful podcasters who told me when I started, he was saying like, the most important thing is consistency and people want to make you part of their routine, but you have to make it easy for them. And so I just really took that to heart because I think when people start listening to you, they want to know that you're going to be coming out with a new thing. If you say it's going to come weekly, bi-weekly, or once a month, whatever it is, they they are rooting for you. They want you to they want to um, listen all that time, but you have to make it easy for them because especially the first year, six months or so, the minute you give them an out, they'll take the out. Um, so consistency and yeah, my friend, 
and told me that I think and that's brilliant that's yeah. exactly what Sam Valentine said because hers is really starting to cook over the last year yeah she's like uh you know just be consistent yeah <laughs> and it'll grow sometimes it'll grow slow but if you're consistent it'll keep growing yeah hopefully um as we wrap up here it sounds like if I remember what you said earlier, you have a seasonal short stories coming out in the fall. Yes. Yeah. I have a book called the jolliest bunch coming October 24th. (laughs) And it's a collection of like holiday stories, mostly Christmas stories. It's sort of like Christmas vacation in a book. Um, So it's Mm. that kind of uh, vibe. And um, my first book is called, how do I unremember this? And it's going to be in paperback on um, May 30th. When will this air? Wow. When will when will this? Uh, about May thirtieth, actually. Okay. Well, so yeah. also my um, my first book, how do I unremember this? Is the Target Book Club pick for June of this year. So I. Wow! Congrats. It'll be in. I, thank you, thank you. So as of June first, it'll be in Target stores across the country, and there'll be a little display, um, and you could pick up the paperback version of How Do I Unremember This and pre-order the Christmas book in. Oh my god, anywhere. amazing. And of uh, and essays. Somewhere. Yeah, they're all like short stories, so they're all just like silly uh silly stories. I love that. Yeah. Well, Danny, it's been an absolute pleasure and I'm going to end it like I always do with a little bit of love on you. Thank you, you as long as I've known you, you've been amazing. I think you're beyond crazy talented, but you're a better person and you and Matt are both so sweet and funny and reliable. And I love you, and I want nothing but the best for you. And thank you for taking some time today. Well, and Sean, the feeling's mutual. You know, I love you and, and think the world of you. And so I'm so glad we got to catch up, and hopefully I'll get to see you in person. And one of these days, people are going to want to have to see the TV show that we were trying to get made. And yeah, it has to Oh, happen. yeah. It, it, it lives in my writing folder. I see it almost every day. Like, I had it out periphery. to someone right before the writer's strike. I just yeah. had uh, the materials out to someone and I'm like, oh. yeah, I've said it. I've sent it as representative materials too. So, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to end the, Oh, I know it. I feel it. I'm going to end the record. Then we can do a quick uh, goodbye.